Are you all ready? Okay, all right. Open your Bibles. Starting in verse 5, Luke chapter 1. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child. Elizabeth, she was barren. Both were old, advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by law to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people, they were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Zechariah, he was troubled when he saw him. Fear fell upon him. The angel said, though, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, she will bear a son. You'll name him John. You'll have joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. But he must not drink wine or strong drink. It's a Nazarite vow. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He'll turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he'll go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and then disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? This is where we're staring today. I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. It's interesting that he doesn't call her old. He just says advanced in years. Wise man. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you'll be silent, unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you didn't believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. The people, they were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. So when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. But after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for, uh, thank you for your provision for our community and how it is that you've uh, given to us this space and this time to be able to gather and not just today, but for years. Years you've given to us time and space. And we're grateful for it. We're grateful for your spirit's involvement in our lives. Grateful for your spirit's involvement in this time and space to allow us to open the scriptures and know who you are. To open up these little cups of wafers and grape juice and know that the broken body and shed blood of Jesus is our fulfilled promise that we have the forgiveness of sin and that one day he will come again.
And we ask that you would help us as we engage in this moment uh, to not take it for granted, but to really give our hearts and our minds to it, to acknowledge that it is, uh, it's special. And we ask this in the most matchless and precious name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. amen. So last week we, uh, we talked through verses five through 17 and uh, what we uh, discovered was that Zechariah and Elizabeth, they had a very special opportunity, right? Uh, Zechariah in particular as a priest had a very special opportunity. He was chosen as part of a division and then chosen by Lot within that division to be able to go into the temple and to be able to offer incense. And this was something that it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. And also he's at his old age. So he probably thought that there was no chance that this would ever happen for him. But here he is now able to do this thing that's super significant and special. And this angel appears as we read and come on, talking about significance of special timing to be able to go in and offer incense, let alone an angel appearing to you. I mean, that is so rare in the Old Testament. And here he's got this thing happening and the angel pronounces this blessing upon him that, that they're going to have this child, that their prayers have been answered. And we'll get to that phrase in just a second, a little bit more. But this significant thing is happening and as this happens, Zechariah has a response. And his response to me is really interesting. His response, if you look back with me, he says, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. How shall I know this? Now think about this for just a second, right? Because <laughs> I'm thinking about Zechariah. He's in the temple. He's in old age. He sees an angel. And the angel tells him something. And then he goes, hmm, I don't know. I'm like, bro, there's an angel talking to you. Like, what are you talking about? How do you know, how do you, like, prove to me that this is going to happen? I mean, this is, so you guys know that there's a difference between asking questions and questioning, right? There, there's a difference between being brutally honest with your doubts versus being cynical, right? There's a, there's a difference between, I don't know versus I don't trust you. Those are two completely different things, right? Now we know that as the story goes on, the angel's gonna curse Zechariah with deafness and muteness, which proves sort of like the way in which Zechariah was asking the question. So if you read it differently, how shall I know this is a question. How shall I know this is a different way of asking the question. Why the angel curse him? Well, it seems as though he was not just asking questions, but he was questioning. Now, there is a difference between those things, and God recognizes the difference between those things, right? Because asking questions, doubts, totally okay with God. In fact, if you look throughout the Old Testament, you're going to find tons of people who just ask questions, who plead for God to just reveal himself. In fact, in Psalm 13, you read this. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? 
How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? That's included in the scriptures and they probably even sang these things. Like that's totally fine. There's something about asking questions that God is, he's, he totally gets. He totally gets your doubt. He totally gets your concern. He's willing to accept you asking him questions. But there's something that happens when asking questions turns into questioning. There's, there's something different between doubting and cynicism. And I think something happened with Zechariah that the angel recognized, and that's why he asked the question. There's an angel standing in front of him, and he still goes, come on, prove it. Come on, prove it? How about an angel talking to you? What, like, prove it, really? What, what's going on with Zechariah? What took him to a place where, where he's, he's not just asking questions, but he's questioning, where his doubt turns into cynicism? I think there's a couple things. The first is, I think, I think he stopped praying. Like, if you, if you were to ask, like, Zechariah, you're offering incense. What were your prayers? What were they? What was he asking while he was there in the temple offering incense? Was he asking for a child? I don't know, because if he was, don't you think the angel would have been like, dude, what you were just praying for, God heard you. Or did Zechariah stop praying? Did he hit a point at at some time in his life where he had prayed and prayed and prayed and then he was just like, you know what? God's not gonna come through. And his doubt turned into cynicism. He prayed and prayed and prayed and then no more. It's not worth praying for this anymore. Or maybe it's also that he forgot the promises of God. I mean, the, the angel shows up and when the angel shows up, the angel starts quoting Old Testament scripture. Like the whole, the whole thing about his child is promises that are listed in the Old Testament. And Zechariah is a priest for crying out loud. He knows the Torah. He knows the promises. He, he, know, he, like, he, could, he could say to the angel, I know exactly where that coming, that's coming from. That's coming from Malachi. That's coming from Isaiah. That's coming from... But instead of, instead of saying, I know that you're quoting promises from the Old Testament, he asks a question. But he could have said, I know exactly what you're talking about, but right over his head, it seems it goes. The angel speaks. He hasn't been praying. He hasn't been thinking about the promises of God. He's just lost touch of maybe what God might do. He's gone from doubt, which is totally fine, to cynicism. And those are completely different things. When, once we start reading between the lines or assuming something on somebody, that's when it goes from doubt to cynicism, right? There's, there's something about like, it's okay to ask questions of a person, right? I mean, we're, we all have plenty of relationships where it, we ask questions. How are you feeling? Are you okay? Right? Are you mad at me? Are you sad right now? Are you, whatever, like, are you depressed? Are you, ha like, what, what is going on right now, right? Asking those questions is totally fine. But when you start to assume, when you start to, like, read between lines, then all of a sudden, it becomes not just questions, but questioning. And that's where the other person, and you've probably felt this on the other side too, starts to feel like, whoa, why are you, why are you getting on me like that? You ever had this happen, right? I could give you a million examples. For instance, me and my brother. 
we used to do this thing where like, and I, I think I could say the same even about my wife, but like, we do this thing where it's like, are you mad? No, I'm, no, I'm not mad. Well, you seem like you're mad. Well, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not mad. But you really seem like you're mad. But I'm not, I'm not mad. But you seem like you're mad. And then you know what happens? They get mad. They start to get mad that you're assuming that they're mad, right? You know, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Everybody's been in this kind of situation. Once you start to assume certain things, you go from doubt to cynicism. And there's a radical difference between those things in terms of relationship. And so what, what's happening here is Zechariah, he's gone from, man, years and years and years of praying, and then he just, something happened where he decided that uh, it's not just doubt anymore. God, I don't, think we're, I don't think we're really in this together. And so as he asks us what happens, what happens is the angel begins to curse him. But first he says, think about this. I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Like, he brings up this, this full-on, like, affront to him. Prove it, is what he's saying, right? Prove it to me. But again, there's an angel right there in front of him. So the angel curses him. And we're skipping a verse here, because we're going to get back to it. He says, Behold, you will be silent, and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you didn't believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, this is interesting that he says silent, but also unable to speak. Those sound like the same thing. They're actually different phrases. Most scholars that that I read uh, think that what's going on here is he's deaf and mute. So he's in this situation where he can't hear and he can't speak, and the angel does this to him. Now, here what we might say is, well, that's mean. <laughs> like, that's not cool. Does God, does God operate in this way? Like, when, when you hit a place of cynicism, does God always do this sort of thing where he just, like, curses you? Well, l- let me just back up and just hit, like, one big theological point and then a bit more of a practical point. First of all, this is an extraordinary event, right? Angels don't appear all the time. People don't go into temples all the time. This is obviously extraordinary. So we should not extrapolate from this the idea that when you doubt or get cynical, that God is going to curse you. That's not necessarily true all the time. What we have happening here, and the reason that it's recorded, is because it's extraordinary. There's a particular thing happening in a time and in a place that is supernatural, so don't ever take uh, the cursing that you might feel or maybe uh, you know, experience as if that's God doing it to you. That's not necessarily the case. So we talk in, in terms of uh, thinking through scripture as to what is prescriptive versus what is descriptive, right? And prescriptive is the this is sort of a thing that will always happen. Descriptive is this is what did happen. What we have here is just what did happen. So don't ever take your cursing, in a sense, however you feel or experience something that's maybe not the way that you would like it to be, as if that was God doing it directly, okay? What we have here is a description of something that was, again, extraordinary. But I also want you to know this. Because this is extraordinary, God is trying to do something. And that means it's special, Right? God, is, God is trying to, he's intervening in a very special way for everybody in the situation. 
He's for them. God's not against them. He's for them. And how is he for them? Well, it might seem odd that God would make him deaf and make him mute because we would go, that doesn't sound like you're for me. Well, of course, because for us, we go, when God is for me, he gets me the new house. He gets me the new car. He gets me the better job. He gets me the whatever. Like, that's the way that we think when God is for us. But here what we have, God is for. He is for Zechariah. He is for Elizabeth. He's for the community. But he does something that doesn't seem like what we would describe as for us. He makes him deaf and makes him mute. But it's actually precisely through this thing that seems like a terrible situation or circumstance where God is going to prove that he's for them. It's through this that Zechariah is going to come out of the temple and everybody's going to go, he must have seen a vision. It's out of this that Elizabeth is going to then go and rejoice with her deaf and mute husband. (laughs) That doesn't sound like the sort of thing that we would say, God is for me, but that's precisely what happens here, right? So as the story carries on, this angel answered him. And here's what he says. He says, <laughs> could you just, just put yourself just for a second, just with your imagination, even close your eyes if you can, put yourself in the temple, you're by yourself, there's incense going up and an angel is there. The angel just told you something amazing. And you're like, meh, not so sure. Then the angel says, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you. Like in my mind, that's exactly the way that he would say it. Is come on, dude. (laughs) Like I'm an angel for crying out loud. Like what are you talking about? But he says, I stand in the presence of God. This word presence has already been used three times up until this point. And now think about this. We're at the very beginning of Luke. It's, it, he's already used it three times. And every time, it doesn't have to do with location. He talks about going before multiple times. And here he uses the word presence, but it's actually the same word. I stand before God. It doesn't have so much to do with location as it does authority or relationship. Right? So when I stand in the presence of God, or if John the Baptist is going to go before people, as he said earlier, what he's not talking about is, is in terms of he's right next to me. Although that's true. God is everywhere all the time. Certainly he's in the temple. He's talking about, man, I'm talking to you on behalf of God. That's what he's saying. Right? Now, as he does this, he's got good news to speak to him. So I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. Luke will use this term good news, um, which is the, the Greek word duagelion, which is where we get the word gospel from. Right? Uh, he'll use this word 10 times throughout his gospel narrative. And each time it's almost like he builds upon it and builds upon it and builds upon it. Here, what he's talking about is this specific good news though about John's ministry. What is John going to do? Why is John coming into this world? And he actually told us, if you look back, we mentioned uh, one thing particularly last week about the good news that John would bring into the world. But there's also a couple other things that I wanna bring out to you. So if you look back with me in verses 16 and 17, he says, this is the angel speaking to him in the temple. Your wife, Elizabeth, she'll bear you a son. So this is the good news, okay? You'll have joy and gladness, for he'll be great before the Lord. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. 
he'll turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. So this is the good news of what John's going to be able to do, right? He'll go before him, that is the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah, and here's what he's going to do. This is the good news of the son that's coming into the world. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. We mentioned that last week. So part of the good news of your son, what he's going to do, he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. But also, he's going to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and also to make the ready for the Lord a people prepared. So what, what the angel is saying here is the good news, which this euagelion term that's used throughout the New Testament speaks primarily to the idea of a kingdom, which is a king entering in. So a king is entering into a dome that has apparently some other king. And that other king is usually some kind of wicked, oppressive king. And there's a good king that's going to come in. This good king's going to come in. And he's going to change things. He's going to turn it for the better. He's going he's to take what is ugly and make it beautiful, and what is dark and make it light, and what is death and make it life. Like, that's what this king is going to do. So the good news is about the dome in which you live, where there's a king who's oppressive and evil, there's a king who's going to come in and make a new dome, a new kingdom, right? The angel here is saying, the euangelion, there's good news. Your son is going to lead the way for a new king who's going to bring a new kingdom. And the way that this is going to look, first of all, as we mentioned last week, is he's going to turn hearts of fathers to their children. They're going to stop thinking about themselves and start thinking about the rest of the world and the generations beyond. But he also says these two things. He's going to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. So this son, John, according to the angel, is going to bring this new kingdom, or at least start it, pave the way. And the way that he's going to do this, he's going to enlighten people. He's going to help people to see differently. Which is to say, he's going to turn what the world looked like at the time, that looked like evil and oppression and violence into something beautiful and good. He's going to help people to see the way that God sees. That's what John is going to do. Now certainly, as this is happening, Zechariah in his mind has Isaiah 65 going on. Again, he's a priest. There's so many other passages that I could quote here, but look with me at this. This is God through Isaiah. I spread out my hands all the day to rebellious people. Doesn't it sound like you're talking to your kids? Come on, bite the hand that feeds you. Who walk in a way that's not good. They follow their own devices. A people who provoke me to my face continually. <laughs> sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. That doesn't seem like a big deal to us, but back then, that was basically pagan tradition. Who sit in tombs and spend night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh. I love pig's flesh, by the way, but back then, that was not the way that they thought. This was, they were turning away from God. What God is saying is, I hold on my hand to them constantly, and they don't care about me. But he carries on in Isaiah and it says, thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster. And they say, don't destroy it, right? So they, they're looking at a bush and they go, there's, there's a little something there. So let's not, let's not destroy the whole thing. There's a little something there. The 
for there is blessing in it. So I will do for my servant's sake as he looks out at Israel and not destroy them all. I'll bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it and my servants shall dwell there. Instead of God saying, let's burn the whole thing and just let it go. No, he looks in and he goes, there's still something there though. Let, Let me pull out from what is there. And what's going on here with, with Zechariah from the angel is he's hearing from this angel, there's good news about what your son's going to do. Your son is going to step into that bush, as it were, and pull out the good grapes. He's going to say, it's not all done. I'm here to, I'm here to revive the thing. Like that's part of the good news. But not only that, that he would pave a way. And what's the way really all about? Well, we quoted Malachi 3.1 already, but the second part of it says this. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant, this is what is going on with the angel to Zechariah, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. So, so here John's got two, two parts of this good news, right? That the angel's telling to Zechariah. First, he's going to help people to see He's going to open their eyes to the ways of God. But also here, what he's going to do is he's going to bring forth the new covenant. Like there's something really significant about this kid is what the angel is saying. Because this new covenant is extraordinary. If you you read through the covenants of old, you've got the covenant that's made to Adam and then you've got the covenant to Abraham and you've got the covenant to Moses and you've got the covenant to David and you've got all these covenants that that were meant to slowly push the kingdom of God forward. But then there's finally this time where God says, you know what, I recognize that this isn't working. I gotta do something extraordinary. I gotta, I gotta get into, I gotta get in myself in a different way, in a different way that I'm, I'm helping Abraham and I'm helping Moses and I'm helping David. I gotta get in myself. And so through the prophet Jeremiah, he says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them. And I'll write it on their hearts. I'll be their God. They shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. They don't need to say that anymore. It's basically what he's saying. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. See, what the angel is saying to Zechariah about his son, John, is that he's going to, first of all, help people to see that what they've been acknowledging as good is not good. What they've been acknowledging as bad is, is actually good. They, they've, they've got a mis, misunderstanding of, of the entire world. But also, this son is going to pave the way for this new covenant that's not the same as Abraham or the same as Moses, or the same as David. It's different. It's not God just using a person. It's God entering into people that he's gonna write it on their heart and he's gonna be their God. Like, this angel is telling Zechariah, the good news is so much more than what you think. And poor Zechariah questions but here's what's crazy, right? Is as Zechariah is questioning, there's people outside waiting. As you carry on, it says, the people, they were waiting for Zechariah. 
And they were wondering at his delay in the temple. How crazy is that? Like, didn't you think these people have jobs and they got stuff to do? They're probably like, okay, we're supposed to be here for, what, 15 minutes while he lights the incense or whatever, however long it's supposed to take. All right, so we'll show up. We'll be there. We'll pray. And it even says earlier on that they did pray. But now here they are, and they're like, come on, man. What's, <laughs> what's going on in there, dude? What are, you, what are you doing? But they don't leave. They don't leave. They don't go, okay, uh, it's past my time. I got to go. I got things to do, more important things. No, they, they acknowledged that actually the most important thing that they could do that day was to wait outside. And this, this, this seems like a small point to me, but it really stood out as I was thinking through this about what it means to be Zechariah versus what it means to be Elizabeth versus what it means to be a person outside. What's the real difference? I mean, Zechariah, he was blessed with a crazy opportunity. And Elizabeth, she was blessed with a crazy opportunity. But would that have happened without those people? behind them? Now, I don't know for sure, and it doesn't say, and I don't mean to read into it, but could, could this have happened without them praying? And who's to say that Zechariah, just by a cast of lots and being born into a line, that he wasn't even chosen to, like, he, he had no say in that. He didn't rise to the occasion to being a priest. He was just born into the line, and they just cast lots, and he got the opportunity to go in. There's nothing really special about him. He wasn't like varsity and everybody else was JV. That's not what happened. He was just born into the opportunity. He got to go in. They all got to pray. Who's better? Nobody's better. They're just playing different roles. And they decided that their role was so significant that they weren't going to leave until they saw Zechariah come out. They weren't like, hey, I got to be on the stage. No, they were like, I will get on my hands and knees and pray for the one who just happened to have the opportunity to go in. And that was so significant to them. I, I'll mention this at the end, but let's, let's not discount what it means to go before versus what it means to go behind. I mean, somebody who goes before needs the people to go behind. And the people behind should not think that that is less than going before. They're both super important. As the story carries on, we get Elizabeth's response. So he came out, well, we get the people's response first. He came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he'd seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them, and he remained mute. You can just imagine this, it's just a crazy scenario. He comes out, he's deaf, he's mute, and he's uh, just trying to sign language, and nobody knows how to sign language this time, so it's probably just a huge mess. But when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. He was probably just like, all right, I'm out. <laughs> but after these days, and here's what's really important. His wife, Elizabeth, she conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, think about this, she left for five months. Her husband comes out deaf and mute, and she's like, I got to get out of here. Five months she remains isolated. And here's what she said during that five months. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me. 
Notice the difference between her and Zechariah. She looks at this and she goes, I didn't stop praying, is the way it seems to me that it reads. I didn't stop praying. He may have gone from doubt to cynicism, but the Lord looked on me. He didn't stop. Like, what, what's going on here is, is God is doing something for her that is it's tremendous. He, he's, he's blessing her in a way, and we'll see this in, in the next verse as well. He's blessing her in such a way that in her mind is, again, supernatural. So when it carries on, to take away my reproach among people. Like this is the way that she felt. This poor woman. It says that she was blameless and she was righteous, but yet here she was barren in her old age and most people were looking at her in this way as a wife of a priest. The wife of a priest? You should have a ton of kids is what they would have thought. But here you are barren. Come on. Tell us the real story. What's really going on down there? You must be a complete mess. You must be full of sin. And here she's reproached among people. She's looked down upon. And, and she doesn't just see this child as the, as the blessing of the one who's going to lead the way for the Messiah. She sees this also as God raising her up amongst her society where, where God can see that she feels degraded she feels less than. She feels looked down upon. And she's been bearing this for years and years. And what God does is he doesn't just give her a child. He raises her up. Like here's what's going to happen. Is she's not just going to be a mother. She's going to be the mother of John the Baptist. Like she probably spent 30 years of just shame. Just shamed by her society. And now here he is raising her up. Like this is what God does. This is, this is what God does, right? So, all of this in mind. A few, few takeaways, right? Cool story. Super cool story. A few things. First, don't let your doubt turn into cynicism. It's okay to doubt. It's totally okay to doubt. I doubt all the time. All sorts of things. Theological points, if God's actually around, what's he doing with me and my marriage or my family? Doubt all the time. Don't let it turn into cynicism. There's a difference. It's okay to doubt. It's okay to ask God where he's at and what he's doing. But don't Try to read between the lines and make assumptions about who he is and what he's like. God is always good. Don't let your doubt get to the point where you ask if God is good. He is good. He is good. And that's the second thing is always look back at his promises and also to what he's done. Like what Zechariah missed was what God had done and what God had promised. Always, like the only way that you can overcome your doubt so that it doesn't become cynicism is to look back and to see and be reminded. Like Elizabeth, God did something. She rejoices. Rejoice in what you have and what God has done. Specifically in the person and work of Jesus. Look back 
at the cross. Look back at the resurrection. Look back at the fact that 2,000 years ago, God decided that when he looked down at our brokenness and our sin, instead of leaving us to ourselves, he decided to enter in and knowing full well that he would be betrayed, that he would be denied, that he would be exiled, that he would be beaten, that he would be crucified, he said, I'm going to do it anyways. He got in and he died. If your doubt gets to the place where that's not true, friend, go there. Go, go to that truth. Go to that place. That is true. That is true. And if you let that be true, it will counter your cynicism. You don't need to get to cynicism. Let his goodness of his past be true. Also, don't stop praying. Poor Zechariah, I think he got to a point where he just, he was like, man, I don't know. I don't think God's ever going to come through. And there could be a variety of things that you're praying for right now or things you prayed for in the past and you just were like, whatever. It's not even worth it anymore. Maybe it's your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your friend, your coworker, your neighbor. Maybe it's your own personal issues. Don't give up. Now, granted, this is an extraordinary event, as I mentioned. You, you probably won't get an angel. That doesn't mean give up. We should act with expectation. Like we trust in a God who's, who's decided to enter into human history by the way, not just of his son, but also of his spirit through you and me. We shouldn't give up on what God might do. God may answer your prayers no matter how simple or extraordinary they are. Like, if you, if you start praying, God, bring reconciliation to this country and to the world, that's not a worthless prayer. That's what God wants. God, bring salvation to my children. That's not a worthless prayer. That's what God wants. God, bring healing to somebody. That, that's not a worthless prayer. That's what God wants. We shouldn't stop just because a certain time period goes on and we think that he's not going to act. Keep on pressing in. Keep on going. And the last thing is this. And this has to do with the simple point of those waiting outside. Embrace your, your calling and your role. Whatever it might be. No matter how simple or how huge what it looks like to other people, what it feels like to yourself. Don't, don't think that you can't play a part in God's kingdom coming into this world. None of those people were named. They waited outside praying. None of them were named. They'll never be known. But would that have happened apart from them? Again, I don't know, but Man, they were not a waste of time. They were certainly not a waste of time. So whatever that means and looks like for your gifts or your role, don't give up on what God might have for you to play a part in. Whether it's coming before or going behind or it's somewhere in the middle, it's not a waste. It's always worth it.
It's always worth it. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this uh, story. Thank you for uh, letting us in on what is true and good and beautiful and thank you for your encouragement even though I often feel like Zechariah, more of a questioner than a question asker. Um, I ask that you would help us to have soft hearts to receive what it is that you have for us the way Elizabeth did that we would rejoice in what it is that you've done in the past, that you would encourage us for what you have for the future. Help us to rest in the person and work of Jesus and to know that you are good. Help us to pray and help us to live how how you want us to and how I think deep down we all want to. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.